Farmer Ventures, the deal experts. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Farmer Ventures podcast. You might be contemplating doing a deal in the next year or so, uh, whether that's a licensing deal, selling a company or going out for investment. If you are, you're probably going to want to understand what the value of your asset or company is. Now, that could be achieved somewhat easily, I guess, in just uh, pressing a button on Excel, but that's probably not the best thing you can do. So to find out what you should be doing, what you should be thinking about, and what's important in the world of valuation, I've got two experts with me today. Kyriakos Javestas and Steve Waterman, both of Pharma Ventures. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Adrian. So valuation. There are several ways of doing it, lots of methods out there. We typically at Pharma Ventures focus in on a couple of methodologies. Perhaps we can start off talking about our favorite and what they are, why we use them. Yeah, sure. So a lot of the valuation changes and depends on the type of the asset and the stage of development. But in most cases, I think we tend to go with an EMPV, uh, an estimated net present value of the asset, which is always based on a discounted cash flow. That's our go-to strategy. Obviously, every step is backed by a lot of data and a lot of analysis. Um, but would you say, Steve, this is the best approach? Yeah, I think it depends on the stage of the asset. So I think at earlier stages, we rely a bit more on comps. And then later on, when it goes into clinical development, we start to prefer EMPVs. But the best results are going to come from a blend of both. In terms of corporate valuation, we'd take a slightly different approach. Uh, we're obviously valuing the entity rather than valuing the asset. And uh, again, you know, for early stage assets, that could be a sum of the parts. We could perhaps do a you know, 10-year model, something like that. But there are several different ways. And I think having one or more valuation methods to have, you know, sort of sense check, calibrate what you're doing in the other models, probably the best approach. Right. So you mentioned comps there, and that's looking at precedent deals. Deals have actually happened. People have paid real money for real things. The different parameters that we're looking at, you know, we'd use some standard parameters, uh, things like clinical stage of development, therapy area, uh, sometimes modality, mechanism of action, is it novel, is it not novel? Um, because they're all important in terms of you know, what the future value of the asset might be. Uh, and I think uh, Kyriakos has done some interesting work recently looking at how they actually do drive value. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. We did look at that recently at the, at the project. And you know, when you're looking at comparables and values, you need to understand what really drives value for that company. The ultimate aim of a comparable analysis is to be able to say, well, I'm closer to these companies than I am to these companies. And when you do that, you need to understand where that value for that company comes from. So stuff we looked at, for example, we had a recent project that was looking at cell therapies, right? We needed to understand what drove value for these companies. And we looked at multiple things, the number of assets. Uh, we know that the more assets you have, obviously, <laughs> the better you look to investors. The stage of development is always important. We need to understand how close to the market they are. The closer the market you are to the market, the less risk you carry. Then modality, the underlying indications and therapeutic areas were equally important. And we found out there were other nuances in the market. You know, investors or even partners, potential pharma big companies, wanted to look at assets that were um, off the shelf. You know, allogenic or autologous. These type of things drive value. They come into play. So you need to really drill down understand the background of each asset, the number of assets, and where that company is in their development, factor all that in, and then benchmark your company. Yeah. I think you do have to be a little bit careful about um, the sort of temporal aspects of it. So how far do you go back 
And, you know, I think we've seen on a number of occasions, I mean, if you look at, and we, we do this fairly regularly, we plot the value of, uh, you know, venture stage companies. We look at the public markets, you know, in, in venture you know, it's been, and to a certain degree in the public markets, it's been a, a 10-year bull run recently ended, maybe, you know, first were high-risk companies back in Q1 2021. Interestingly, you know, we've just been doing a study where although the frequency of venture deals is going down and the amount of capital being deployed in those deals is going down, you know, Series B valuations in the US have been going up. That's probably a survivor bias thing, um, but you need to understand when you're benchmarking, you know, when was the deal done? What were the relative conditions? As well as just, you know, is it the same modality? Is it, um, you know, the same therapy area? Is it, the, is it the same stage of development? So it sounds like there's quite a lot of subtlety in there. It, it's not just uh, I'm a phase two oncology asset. Let's look at phase two oncology assets. No, absolutely not. It's much more granular than that. Phase two, in which indication is your indication of rare disease? Is it know how many patients are you going to treat? What is the price you're going to command? What is the ultimate value you could capture through that asset? If it's nowhere near the asset you're benchmarking, is that really a true comparable then? Can that really help you? If not, let's move on next. Then following a bit from what Steve just said, you know, identify obviously the right companies, but you need to identify the right, you know, time frame. When were the most comparable companies coming out? When did they raise capital? And in some cases, you even have to go by geography. Because when you're looking at early stage companies who are accessing capital or raising money still, you know, things vary widely from one jurisdiction to another. Yeah, I think we've been looking again at this recently as something we've been doing for some time. If you look at the differential between US and European VC valuations, over time, on average, there's about a 40% discount. It does vary and does compress from time to time. We suspect it's real. Um, obviously, what we don't know, are the companies in a Series B the same in the US as they are in, in Europe? Um, given the drug development template, you know, in terms of timeline and you know, how that capital needs to be deployed to get from one value inflection point to another, you'd think that they would be. But then, you know, uh, you just don't know. We've also looked um, very specifically in, in terms of when we, um, although something may be a Series A or a Series B, is there a difference from when it, you know, maybe that Series A went in when it was uh, in clinical uh, and the Series B went in to something that was discovery? And there seems to be a clear correlation between stage of development of the lead asset or the, the platform and, um, you know, and the maturity of the asset. There is definitely some impact of previous money going in and what series is it but you, you do sort of notice the bees tend to be going in later mainly in early clinical development and the series a's going in before um before clinical development starts but that's not always the case mm -hmm. uh, and it can vary over time and i think understanding some of that's helpful you know, if you're putting a series b into a company that's already put in 20 million most existing investors don't want a down round you talk quite quite a bit though focusing on on companies and valuations what about assets if you're looking at individual assets um and typically we're, we're looking at those at development stage do the, do the same sort of rules apply in, in when you're looking at comparables i think we treat them in a different way so we start to get a lot a lot more quantitative so if, i think if somebody comes to you with a comp set and says the, the median of this is with a standard deviation of x and y 
um, and gives you nothing else behind it, I would get a bit... <laughs> and that does happen, right? We've had people come and say, I think I'm worth this because of this one deal I saw. Ultimately, you do need a single point, right? Because that's the point at which you're going to invest or you're going to sell or you're going to do something. Um, you know, take some kind of corporate action or you're going to divide the spoils in a licensing deal. So you need to have some view where it is but that usually starts with a range so with i think with the with the EMPV type approach you're still uh, i mean a, a company is solely a collection of assets um plus um some corporate infrastructure around it which has value in itself uh, and maybe a platform which is even harder to actually determine you know what the value of of that is but I think when we when we do a single asset EMPV, we're very, very tightly focused on that asset. We need to understand a lot about how it's going to be used in the future, uh, even if it's a really early stage asset. Uh, I think we need to understand a lot about what the competition's like, what the regulatory pathway looks like, what the costs of development are, uh, when it gets commercialized, you know, what does that look like? And I think we spend quite a lot of time trying to find comparable structure of the PL to give the best estimate of what the economics might look like. But you look at it very much on a case-by-case basis. Each product may have multiple indications which you wish to model. Um, you need to understand the relative timings of those. Um, you need to understand the relative risks, so things like PTRS uh, or probability of success or likelihood of success uh, and because that's quite important i think you know things like discount rates uh, again these are things that we we wouldn't typically use in uh in comps although you can you can do some stuff with it um if you can't find a, a really good set of comparables you might have to go and discount back from something that looks or you know risk adjust from something else that looks um but i think sort of a detailed understanding of you know, when we do comps, we don't tend to go into detail like the epidemiology, the you know the current right. treatment paradigm, as much as we would do for a model. Um, when we're getting a lot more quantitative, I think there is a risk with with the modelling process that you get um, you overindulge in in turning stuff into numbers. So I think you have to have a a good set, you know, a good understanding to help back up your arguments as to why you're taking that position. Uh, and quite often that's the, only the sort of starting point of a dialogue with a counterparty. Um, right. You know, pricing is another another sort of minefield of, you know, things that you could, you, it, it's fairly easy, to, you know, to go in onto the internet, fairly easy to go and get pricing data at a relatively high level, but understanding some of the nuances is, is really important. And I think probably import, more important than, people realize an earlier stage of development because if you go and you, you know you go with your model and you're expecting something that is a, an order of magnitude greater than is being as achievable in the market then you know you sort of lose credibility uh, to a certain extent and i think you lose a little bit of negotiating power because you are more reliant on them uh, for, you know or whatever the, the position that they'll end up you know the view that they'll they'll be giving you you just you just look uninformed and i think that's right. uh, i think being well informed about your asset and its competitive environment and all of the other processes that are required to get it to market is much more important than being you know 100 accurate right so uh, let's sort of unpack a few of those there because we you covered a lot of ground there and and um the, the modeling aspect is an interesting one because 
there's there's a tendency, I guess, for people to it's in an Excel spreadsheet and it spits out a number to just believe it because there's lots of numbers on a page behind it. But the validity of those numbers, as you, you you said there, Steve, is is understanding and knowing where they came from and how you arrived at them. And, and I think we all accept forecasting is difficult. Yeah. I think the limitations, understanding the limitations of the data that you're using is important. So, you know, if you know, for example, sometimes you'll have to extrapolate from one market to another because you don't have the epidemiology. Absolutely. Something we have that we recently had a COVID asset. I mean, COVID didn't exist two years ago, right? How, how do you forecast that? Right. How do you move forward? Ultimately, what you're trying to do is research the market as much as possible. It's a very different approach to corporate evaluation, right? You're you're going there with a much more detail, more scientific, if you want. Although, to be fair, that term is not very accurate because <laughs> it's more of an art than a science. But you're trying to put yourself, analyze every single factor, anything from market share to market penetration, uptake, pricing, competitive landscape, time to market, cost to develop, um, anything else, any other microeconomic factors, if you can factor those in. And ultimately, the ultimate goal is not to arrive to the right price, is to arrive to the most defensible value for your asset. So when you start negotiating with someone and you know that your valuation model is just a starting point, right? What you want to do is go and say, well, market uptake or market share or pricing, how do you arrive at this price? You need to have at least two or three methods backed up with solid analysis and data. And you need to be able to go in that meeting confidently and say, well, we arrived at this price using X, Y, Z, and this is why we think we're going to command this price. Or this is why we think we're going to hit the market in three years. So it's what's behind the numbers as much as the numbers themselves. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a mass mod rigorous analysis just because you're focused on one thing, a single asset. With a single asset, there are just so many factors you need to, you need to take into consideration. Yeah. But definitely, it's, sometimes there is a saying in the valuation world, like the, the best number is not the highest number, it's the most defensible number. The number that you can go in there with and know that you have a solid foundation to build on. And that the other side can agree on or that you can well, beat them into submission with. It's like that to Steve. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. One of the reasons for understanding your asset in such depth and how it's useful is it helps build alignment with the other party. Right. Because if you can agree on most of the, the factors, the chances are you, you, you can agree on something in the end that is mutually acceptable. It's also, there's a bit of discovery as well. I mean, we did some, this is a few years back when we were doing some work in gastric cancer and there were many different subdivisions of gastric cancer. And when we first got the, the counterparties model, the numbers were much, much lower than than what we had you know, been projecting. And it turned out that they'd missed out a load of addressable cancers within it. And, and then that expanded the scope of the license. So I think that's a very simple example. You know, there are so many contributors to the complexity of the model. You know, you need to you need to have a, a, a less abstract discussion, you know, and right. be able to sort of talk about, well, how does it fit into this disease state? What who's it treating? And then you can start to argue, well, what percentage, what price, um, which, you know, the percentage of, you know, I say percentage, I mean market share as a percentage, um, you know, they are massive drivers of, you know, of the eventual right. value. Um, right. And I think getting, a, you know, there's, that we've mentioned earlier, there's the credibility issue, there's also the alignment issue. If you, if you go into a negotiation, unless there's a good reason underpinning it, and you're miles apart, it, I think it's harder to bridge. So, so there is in in that utility of evaluation within a in a, a a deal negotiation or a deal discussion, there is sharing and there is there, there kind of has to be if you're going to arrive at a, a position where you both agree. So, 
if you're sharing something that you you really haven't researched very well, there's a, a real danger, as you said, credibility or your deal falls apart. Yeah, and I think you know, sort of going uh, another issue, you know, and maybe this is a bit too um, you know, specific, but you know, the pricing piece. You know, we were doing something the other day where um, there weren't any analogs, and analogs are really generally really easy to find if if they have them um, and get prices for them. Uh, admittedly, we don't know, and it's difficult to find out what the actual discounts are mm-hmm. from the the you know the list prices. Um, but you know, one of our colleagues, you know, built what's called an economically justifiable price model. So actually, you know, what what is the value of the clinical utility this is bringing, and that gives us a starting point for a discussion. I think it also, when you know somebody goes into a a licensing discussion, when they have some kind of pricing work done in in some rigorous way. It certainly adds to their credibility, adds to the strength of the argument. People may not agree with the number itself, um, but I think um, certainly having that, and you know, we're increasingly hearing you know going in with some kind of pricing data is important, and earlier and earlier in discussions because um, it can change the you know the value of your your model or the range right. of values that come out of your model quite substantially. And is that is that because by its very nature, uh, if if you're doing some kind of pricing analysis, you do have to understand the landscape. You can't just oh yeah, it's not. And so um, analogs is fairly straightforward, but all of the other work, you know, you, as as part of the valuation approach that we take, we try to understand the, the disease landscape into which the asset is sitting, how the asset profile is, what's the likelihood of competition, how strong is that competition. Uh, for later stage assets, you know, we there's better data on how it stacks up against either the incumbent molecules that are being used as the standard of care, or the, you know, the, the sort of late clinical competition. Earlier, it's a lot harder, and I think you can, with more data, you can do more elaborate studies, which will give you a a better pricing corridor um, for you know for your model. When it gets earlier, I think having at least some sense of what the market is paying um, with your with your analog research is useful, but probably backing it up with something like a, an EJP is worth doing as well, um, so that you've got you know it's kind of a bit like we were talking about um, right at the beginning, where underpin what your thinking is because the models do use similar approaches, they use similar data. Uh, they just have different, uh, slightly different application. I mean, I think the bottom line is you need to do your homework, right? Yeah. Because if you don't do the other part, it will. Yeah. And you don't want to go in that meeting holding up their arguments. You yeah. want to have your own. That that requires data and access to data. And you know, at, at Pharma Ventures, we we have a lot of databases. We we, and and that's that's why we can do some of the things that we do. In itself, though, that data is it. It's a limited data set. It's not everything, and. Do pharma have their own data sets, or are they using the same tools as we're using? And and is there a danger that that you could end up with two valid models, but based on different data sets? So it depends who you're talking to. Um, big pharma undoubtedly have an information advantage over you. Um, not only um, do they probably have access to more data than you do, um, certainly more varied sources of data. You're probably um, going up against somebody that's had an established franchise in the particular market that you are targeting, uh, and they will have you know real market data that is inaccessible. Um, 
they will also have um you know uh, views on the you know the, the likelihood of success or probability of success of a product which are you know developed through in-house tracking um so we've we've had many conversations with uh larger pharma companies who have a specific view on a specific mechanism of action and they apply a much different probability of success to that mechanism of action than we would teasing that out from uh, publicly available data or from uh, you know the data sets that we've got access to i think is is hard so i think you've got to accept that there's going to be a you're going to be disadvantaged with big pharma but you have to narrow that gap as much as you can and then those gaps can be bridged it's easier to bridge them, right? Um, it doesn't mean you can't bridge them if you don't have it. No, but I think you are more, you know, as I said, sort of the, the credibility of the proposition is higher if you go in with, you know, higher quality information to start with. So, in a way, so it's almost imperative that you 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 build the highest quality data package uh, in preparation for going into uh, a dialogue or a negotiation um, with with a, a counterpart, um, so that. A, your arguments are defensible, and, and if there are gaps, they're bridgeable. Yeah, I, I think it, it's unrealistic to believe that your client doesn't know anything about their asset, yeah. right? <laughs> um, Shouldn't be unrealistic. One would hope not. <laughs> part, of it, part of it is confirming what they know, yeah. uh, testing their assumptions, their robustness. And you know, we've done several projects, and you and I have, have, have done one of these recently, where we're given a model and we validate it. And we and we point out where the areas of risk are, where where the strength, you know, where the areas of confidence would be, and when you're going into negotiation, these are the things that you're likely to be tested on. And I think that's a pretty valuable uh, position to be in. If you don't have an expert doing that for you and a, a third party view, I think you know you run the risk of struggling. And, and we, we've we've seen this recently when we've been. Um, it's well, it's an analog of, of what I've just described, but um, with, with with the new sort of pricing and reimbursement franchise we, we've just launched, we've had discussions with people uh, in reasonably um, substantial businesses who want a, a third party stress test of their pricing assumptions for a particular product uh, that they're thinking of of, of in licensing or acquiring. Um, and they, you know, they know that there are inherent biases in some of their systems, where we can we can provide a, a third party either validation or actually refute some of the, the assumptions. Right, would be fair, I guess, to say that the largest of the large farmer are are willing to be persuaded if you can present the right arguments. I don't think I've been in a discussion where the other side don't listen to what you're saying. They're all very interested. I mean, we were doing a, a call earlier this week. Where there was trading of insights into a particular, uh, you know, particular therapy area, very specific disease and a, an approach to that particular disease, people are curious to know what the other side think about something, and they they learn a lot from talking to lots of different companies because they have lots of you know, if you think you're in big pharma, they're assessing thousands of opportunities a year. But every time you're doing that assessment, you're learning something new about what you know. So I think I'd be really surprised if there was somebody on the other side of the table who wasn't open to, to hearing a different point of view. They may not agree with it. Sure. Um, but, you know, I think um, the ability to have that kind of conversation is really important. Um, and I think, you know, stress testing your arguments before you go into that conversation by doing 
you know valuation landscaping type exercises is is it's an important rehearsal um as much as anything else it also refines your arguments possibly adds weight to them mm-hmm. to a certain extent the the numbers don't matter it's the process and the pre- right. the preparation that it gives you is probably more important than the actual number that comes out of it now that's a little bit different f- f- you know from other situations where you know equity is being invested at a particular price people need to know that they're walking walk, you know, everyone's walking away with an acceptable deal uh, may not be fair but it's acceptable and i think having you know another sort of value to what we do is when people are going out to market if there are unreasonable expectations and you know this from personal experience mm-hmm. where you've gone to market and probably haven't got the alignment within the existing shareholder group that you you wanted uh, when it comes down to the nitty gritty and the price on the table isn't doesn't meet their expectations mm. there's there's a problem so part of you know any valuation process is also alignment setting uh, you know for any transaction that you may go out to do and that's internal alignment i think that's that's quite right. important right it doesn't mean that everyone accepts what you tell them but i think part of the process and part of the discussion that that generates is important before going out as well as as well as honing and stress testing your 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 arguments for value right and that allows you to arrive at at um numbers which per se as you said may not and probably are not absolutely accurate and and nobody really goes back and looks at this and say oh, we got that one right um but it's important from the, the from the context of that everyone can agree that's fair and reasonable or a reflection of something that they can construct a deal around. Yeah, I think it being acceptable is, you know, fair. <laughs> fair can be quite... I think at, yeah. at the yeah. end of the day, there's, you know, if, if if people can get to an agreement that they can tolerate, that's... That's, that, that, that's, that's probably... That's good. A, if above yeah. that is even better, but tolerate is... is, is, is yeah, whether is, it's fair or not. I mean, fair is very subjective, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's degrees of fairness. So, I mean, and you said something earlier about bridging gaps, and and a valuation exercise can establish the, the the perceived value of an asset that you can then then carve up into some kind of deal if that's what it's supporting, if it's a licensing deal. How can you ensure that that you do capture future value if it turns out the value of it turns out to be better than that? They know it does. What what are the mechanisms for doing that that you can build into? To the situation to make sure that you're kind of safeguarding so that yeah. you mean in terms of the valuation so in, in in terms of of when you're using a valuation to construct a deal so you you may end up with an npv that you happily divide up into an upfront and, a, and some other components and but the and, and the classic one is Lipitor, if you like. It's an old, old one. It was it, the valuation said it would hit peak sales of a billion. It did 13 billion. So how do you ensure when you translate from a valuation into a deal that you put mechanisms in place that if it does sell 13x what you thought it was going to do, you still get your fair share of the value? What, what, how do you do that? Lipitor is an exception yeah. to the rule. Um, and, you know, it's actually... Well, uh, uh, to make it even more extreme, the original estimates were in the in the mid hundreds. <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, I used to work at Warner Lambert, which yeah. discovered it. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> and, you know, I think it doesn't that doesn't matter. But um, I think 
you know, how do you bridge gaps, I think is your question. And this is more of a deal structure question, right? But at the same time, we, we, we can do a couple of things. One is obviously we build dynamic models. We are our models, the way we built them, they can accommodate different scenarios, different market penetration rates, different revenue forecasts, right? So ideally, and I think Steve touched a bit on it earlier, it's although you know you have an EMP, which is a single point, um, you should really see the value of the asset as a range. And that's why we incorporate sensitivity analysis as well. So you can you can see the full value if some of your if you're underestimating, for example, the market share or the market uptake or, or the forecast. That said, because obviously you need to arrive to a deal, the best way to to safeguard yourself and be be you know be sure that you you'll be able to join in the value if there is a is the, the higher uptake and, and a better forecast is to structure the deal milestones and royalties that safeguard your your value of the, of the of the asset. When we get to negotiating deals and, and looking at the, the value inputs, the, the comparables give us a sense of what the market will pay, what normal is, and allow us to say, well, actually that you know, except that you know the particular value on a term sheet is normal or it's unusual. And then that's a basis, well, let's understand why that's that way. So when you have a term sheet, you can convert it into an EMPV and understand what share of the underlying asset your client is getting. If you think that they're getting an unfair share, then you can work out which buttons you want to press to get a better share of it. So is it a case of bridging gaps using commercial milestones, royalties, because the clinical and regulatory milestones seem reasonable? You know, that may be one approach. Um, it may be you look at a whole range of different scenarios uh, like Kyriakos has suggested and and see you know simulate what is the impact on share with that and then work on ways of improving it. Because if you if you strongly believe yours is going to be 13 and 1, you're probably disconnected anyway. Mm-hmm. But if it's you know between 2 and 1, then you have some negotiating power in the sense that you know, you, you can ask for higher upside at the back end, um, right. which is usually easier to get than higher numbers at the beginning, right? <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, there's always a reluctance on that one. I think, and it's harder to argue for earlier stage milestones using a model. You also got to be aware of what the party is going to invest. And, you know, there are different um, negotiating points from the other side. I mean, you know, a small company is less able to pay large milestones in the in the development phase mm-hmm. less less so in the regulatory phase um, of, of the development because they want to put most of their resources into and so how do you model that um, and I think that's probably something we can use EMPV to do so well look if our client is willing to forego early stage milestones what does it need to do to get that back and give you know suitable compensation and deal split uh, right. back to uh, back to the client? It's kind of like trading the the back end for the the front end, but you've got to understand what kind of size does the back end need to look like to, you know, compensate for that loss. Right, and have some degree of confidence you're going to get there. And and, and you can argue that you know you can yeah. say you know we do quite detailed analysis of well what happens if you move this lever, what happens if we increase this milestone or this type of milestone, what happens if we increase royalty rates, and then we can have a discussion with our clients which is valuation-led, um, but allows them to understand what the impact of of moving milestone X is versus increasing royalty 
you know, either adding royalty tiers or adding, you know, the first and second tier, adding a couple of percentage points to that. So I think using both approaches is is helpful. I think when we start out modeling, we tend to to not be purely transactional. It will end up as transactional eventually. And then we will overlay the terms of the term sheet and that uh, and then you know work backwards because we know uh, from you know what they're prepared to give us at various stages we've got a rough idea of what it's going to cost them to develop it and we'll have a, a, a you know reasonable working idea of what their pnl looks like and then we can make some educated guesses around um you know what we think we can improve and what we have to concede we we talked to some detail about about comparables and and we've also talked about modeling and forecasting but maybe just to cover a bit of the detail of actually and and the the depth to which if you're going to do it well you should go can you talk just a little bit about the sort of components that we we put into the the models when we're doing them sure absolutely so we usually start by by looking at the clinical positioning of the asset we want to understand um the stage of development how long it will take to develop uh the population is going to target and after that, you know, the epidemiology data, how many patients are going to be treated eventually when it hits the market. On top of that, we look at market share and market uptake, usually compared, you know, based on analogs, but we will also factor in competitive intelligence, the competitive landscape. Where do we see the asset benchmarking compared to competition? Is it going to be the first, the second, the third to market? And so on. And in these cases, especially with early stage assets, you may want to factor in different target product profiles. You know, if you hit this efficacy point or the next. On top of that, we'll look at pricing. We'll try to understand the development timeline and we'll make assumptions on the operational expenses, how much will the clinical trials cost, uh, how much will COX be, SGNA, and we'll put all that together and compile a, a PNL that eventually will drive the value uh, of a discounted cash flow model. And then from there, we calculate the AMPV. Obviously, this is a very high level. Each tab, whether that's market share, penetration, or competitive landscape, takes a lot of analysis, right? Right. You can slice it and dice it many different ways. We'll look at stuff like system development, type of asset, modality, mechanism of action. We'll factor all that in as detailed as possible so that we can understand where the asset will fit in the whole, you know, both clinical landscape as well competitive landscape. Yeah. And, you know, just to give you an example of a few things, you know, pricing, we talked earlier a little bit, I think, uh, on analogs. Um, you know, building you know things like budget impact models, EJPs, etc. I think is something you know um, we think is is becoming more and more important. Uh, we do custom uh, probability of successes, so you know we try and uh, do a lot of the path by path analysis that a lot of the papers do, looking specifically at that indication rather than therapy area. Um, we try and look at the influences of different things like modality that. Uh, Kyriakos just mentioned, uh, and because these will have significant impacts on the you know, the the value that comes out the other end of the um, of the model, but I think I mean certainly from my perspective, and I, it, we we spend an awful lot of time trying to build that revenue forecast and understand what the key drivers are, and I think that's it, one of the most important parts. It's it's definitely true, right? I mean. Look at it from this perspective. Anyone can go build a model by grabbing figures from literature, right? Whether that's the average cost of a clinical trial, whether that's the average PTRS across different therapeutic areas, how representative is that of your asset? What we try to do is customize everything to the asset, to the particular situation. So the PTRS will be for the specific indication 
and probably will factor in stuff like biomarkers, for example. Anything that gives us an edge and is more specific to the asset we'll try to do. Uh, pricing, same thing goes you know, for analogs. Is the true analog? Does it actually reflect the current market landscape or is it the reflection of the market landscape 15 years ago? If that's the case, is that really an analog you want to use? Because things might have been very different in that indication back then. So it's a lot of people recognize a lot of the terms we use, right? PTRS, pricing, market penetration, and there is data out there. But the challenge is doing the analysis to identify the best data. And if you don't have that best data readily available, you have to go and create them. You have to work on them. So that's 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 what we offer our clients. That's why we give them an advantage rather than just grabbing random values from the internet. We came into this that the better quality of valuation, the better quality of data, the better discussion, negotiation you can have with a counterpart, where you can get agreement and get it get a deal done ultimately, because that's that's kind of, of what we're aiming at here. So if you haven't got the, the skills and the capability to do that or the data to do it, there's places you can go and obviously we're one of them where, you, where, where we can do that kind of thing for you. Covered a lot of topics here today and Steve Kiriakos, thank you uh, for your insights and, and your knowledge and uh, hopefully people will take that and think it's not as simple as I thought it was and maybe I should get some expert help on this. And if that's the case, head on over to www.farmaventures.com where you can find out about this and other services we provide. And if you're interested in uh, our other podcasts, go to www.farmaventures.com slash podcasts. Farmaventures, the deal experts.